This week on the Recruitment Flex, we dig in deep on the Abercrombie & Fitch hiring practices documented in a Netflix special. Virtual cashiers, are they a good idea? Sending personalized messages, a waste of time, we ask the question. Are older workers part of the solution in our current supply and demand issues when it comes to labor forces? Welcome to the Recruitment Flex with Serge and Shelly. I'm Serge. And I'm Shelly. And we talk all things recruitment starting right now. Welcome to the Recruitment Flex. I'm Serge and my co-host is Shelly. How's it going? Serge, this is two weeks in a row where you sound like you're still not feeling 100%, man. 2022 has not been the year where I felt the most healthy, but the thing is, still have to get through it. I know. I know. Just my lifestyle and and treat myself better. I just feel bad for you. I know how, how hard it would be to constantly not feeling a hundred percent. I can hear it in your voice a bit there too. So I'm sending you some good vibes. Thank you. Thank you for the good good vibes. vibes. You get better. (laughs) Well, thinking about good vibes, right? I know what you're going to say. I'm on LinkedIn and I see this message from Steven Rotberg, which I really admire. Uh, I think what he's done with College Recruiter, we've had it on the show a couple of times. And basically what he says is just, uh, we're very genuine and our our conversations are real authentic, which I I guess is exactly what we're aiming for. Like we're nothing special. We didn't pay him either. If you really want good vibes in this world, it's stuff like that. Do you know the other thing too, though? As soon as Ira Wolf chimed in, I don't know how the conversation took such a sharp turn. And before I know it, you guys are debating hockey teams. <laughs> I know. Oh, my God. I was like, oh, I don't know where to go with this. Well, I, I wasn't going to comment. But when <laughs> Stephen replied to Ira's comment, because I, I interviewed Ira by myself. That's and, right. And I think he was joking. Maybe he wasn't saying like, <laughs> without Shelly to ground him, watch out. And then Stephen uh, came back and said, oh, that must have been awful. Something like the Toronto Maple Leafs winning the cup. And I really take offense to that because as a Montreal Canadiens fan, (laughs) the most awful thing is Toronto Maple Leafs winning the cup. I can't think of a worse thing when it comes to sports. So it was an an insult. Oh, okay. Well, I could tell it got heated there real quick, but. (laughs) So speaking of friends, Serge, I want to ask you something here on the whole theme of just being kind to people. I know you are incredibly generous with your time. Like people must ask you for favors, right? Yeah. Yeah. They come to you and say, I think we both do, whether it's our personal friends or professional, but at what point is a favor just stretching? It's it's reaching. It's too much. Like at what point do you kind of go, fuck. (laughs) I know. I like to consider myself a giver, like give, 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 and eventually take when uh, you've given a whole lot. That philosophy has been really helpful in my life. It's a great philosophy when it comes to networking. Give value to other people, not with anything in, in mind, but at one particular point when you feel like you need some help or a favor, you feel a lot more comfortable approaching those people because you know that you were there when they needed you. And so there's a professional way and there's also personal. And when it comes to professional, I think I've been taken advantage over the years Mm -hmm. with people coming to the well several times and I just can't say no. But 
for you? Where's your yeah. point? Well, and there's a kind of a underlying story here behind this because professionally, at what point of asking me to do a favor because of your lack of planning? Yes. For your lack of investment in building those relationships. So professionally, there comes a time where I just feel like, okay, either I need to start charging you for this. And that's a hard conversation because you've done this for people before, but they keep coming back and they're just like pulling your fucking arms off, right? I'm really struggling with it right now. I, I really am. When it comes to friends asking for favors, if it's my best girlfriend, if she asked me for $10,000, I'd give it to her in a heartbeat. But generally, as soon as money gets involved, friendships change. So that's why in my heart, I'm thinking like, I would do anything for her. She's my best friend. But I also know that as soon as money comes into it, it's like, oh, it's weird. It, and it same changed. thing with family. Like when family asks you for money, of course, you don't want to say no to them. But it changes shit. Yes, it does change things pretty dramatically. And the minute then you're involving money in anything with family, friends, or even professional people that you're dealing with, it can change the relationship in a lot of ways. I'm the same way. At one particular point, I've realized in the last couple of years of how much time is valuable, especially when you're trying to get a lot of things done Mm -hmm. and you're trying to meet your commitments that actually make you money. I'm always up to introduce people, to connect people, but also I don't want people taking advantage of the amount of years and work that I put in building my network and creating that trust with those people and saying, well, I'm just going to piggyback off that and and leverage all the work that you've done, all the knowledge base that you've grown. To me, that is something that you should be charging for, but it's damn hard to ask. It's it's a really tough conversation to have. So I completely agree. But Shelly, I am really excited about today's recruitment insights because we've got some fun stuff to talk about. Yeah. Yeah. Some hot topics. So did you watch Netflix? Of course. Um, And I think it's called White Hot. Yes. And it was about Abercrombie and Fitch. Throughout the whole documentary, they interviewed a lot of the recruiter, the corporate recruiter. It was super interesting because for me, when Abercrombie and Fitch was white hot, as they put it, was right when my boys would have been kind of that just dying to be like the older boys. Okay. So having Abercrombie and Fitch when they were like between eight and 12 years old was like super cool. But what I really enjoyed about it was the fact that the recruiters were by today's standards, even 10 years later after the fall of Abercrombie and Fitch, the shit they were doing, like, well, nobody can tell us we can't. So we're just going to do it. And by today's standards, it was horrifying like a a written down on paper manual of what you can and cannot even say when you're flying on the corporate jet. Oh my God. Mm -hmm. So what was the most shocking thing of when it comes to recruiting that you saw? Yeah, there was a lot of shocking things, but some things that weren't really surprising. So Abercrombie and Fitch was right in my prime years. Were you one of the models? I was exactly. (laughs) I didn't want to share that conflict. Oh God. Okay. But 95 to 2005 were really yeah. their peak years, yeah. which was exactly when I was like 18 to 25. Mm-hmm. But I never had any interest in going to Abercrombie and Finch. I really didn't even know what it was. It, it made me 
go back to a little bit of how I started recruitment because I started recruitment recruiting retail workers. It was a little bit of a flashback in some ways. And it, it was hiring retail workers, not like a clothing store. This was cell phone stores. So a little mm-hmm. bit different. Mm-hmm. But even to those days, there was always a focus on hiring the most attractive people that you could find because the most attractive people drew more attention to your store and you would have more people coming in. Is that right? Is that wrong? I'm not going to make that argument. But there's so many things that were wrong according to our standards now. Like it, it was made clear in the books that you should be looking for that all American look. Recruiters could only hire good looking people. And they even had a guide of what a good looking person was. And what really concerned me is okay, you want to hire good looking people? Probably you should not put that out in your guide. But secondly, you're discriminating on so many levels across the board that are more concerning to me than saying, hey, we want to hire good looking people. And poor store managers, because they had to send pictures of their workers to the head office. And Mike Jeffries, who was the CEO, would actually go and look at the pictures and be like, well, that's why you're struggling in sales. You need to hire more good looking people. I know it, it absolutely shocking. And I think what saved them was there was no Twitter. No, there was no, <laughs> there was no Instagram. Media. Instagram right. hadn't been invented yet. Right. Well, and it was kind of what... like the Instagram before Instagram. That was the image they were trying to portray because Instagram yeah. is all about the look and, and the aesthetics, yeah. which is exactly what Abercrombie and Fitch was trying to strive for. A lot of concerning things, but I'm going to give you a little bit of a hot take. Really, they tried to be a brand that was exclusionary. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, is that a bad thing? We talk a lot about this in business, right? You really want to create a niche of where you live and what your ideal customer is. They were very clear of what their ideal customers were. And they didn't want anyone else to be their customers. Where it went wrong is when you start discriminating, in my opinion, against other races, but just to hire good looking people in a retail store that sells clothes. They've been doing that for hundreds of years. I'm sorry to say, but it still probably goes on today. Too. It still goes on today. It's just good. they didn't write it down. For sure. Like, thank you for being so honest, because the fact is someone who's easy on the eyes for customers coming in, that's human nature. I don't think you can deny that. I even think back to when I was in the staffing agency days, being well-groomed is what we called it, but there's a type that we hired for sure. There absolutely was. If you put us all in a lineup, you would be like, oh yes, there is very much a type going on here. So I think it happens everywhere. They were just so blatant about it. They were so blind about hiring practices. So there's the difference. You can build a brand around whatever you want that reflects your ideal customers, but where they took it too far was making it a part of their hiring practices. That's when you're breaking the law. Yeah, they were breaking the law. Like it was very clear they were breaking the law, but I think we're all naive to think that retail stores don't try to hire good looking people. It's a fact. I know it happens. And to say it doesn't, or it's wrong. Sure. Maybe it's wrong, but if I'm running a business and I feel that if I can have 
more sales with attractive people working in the stores. Yeah. Have you ever Always. gone into Sephora? I don't I've know. Yet to, I've yet to see anyone who has a less than ideally proportioned face. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it, there you it go. does happen. They're just not so blunt about it. Yeah. Or so, yeah. So stupid is to, to write it into a training manual. Yeah. And where they went wrong is really the look they put together as far as what their employees should look like. They really focus on the white male, the white, good looking male with the bleach bond hair and the uh, six pack. They want a neatly combed, attractive, natural, classic hairstyle is acceptable. Dreadlocks are unacceptable for men and women. Gold chains are not acceptable for men. So that's the natural American classic, the ANF look. That's where they went wrong. If you want to hire good looking people, hire good looking people across the board. Is my so the only thing, yeah, that's offside is calling out dreadlocks. Yes. Because being told what to wear, like in terms of a uniform or how to appear, the fact that you have to wear their clothes, well, of course, but where they cross the line was that for sure. Yeah. All right. Next topic. I just saw it this morning and mm-hmm. I, I had to read it right away. So Freshy, have you ever been to Freshy? I have not actually eaten there. No, I haven't. Freshy is a Canadian based health food, fast food type service. One of the reporters for Toronto stars noticed at one of the restaurants that they had this virtual cashier named Percy. It's not only a computer screen, it's a physical person that's working behind the screen and taking your order. What? Yes. And that person is actually, in this case, they're based in Nicaragua and getting paid $3.75 an hour, which the minimum wage in Ontario is currently $15. So this has been happening since at least November and there's more being installed right now. They're actually going this route across a lot of their stores. My first thought in reading all the articles, a lot of people are just like, this is a shame. Like what a way to burn your brand. And uh, let me ask you a question. Why, why is this wrong? I I see nothing wrong with this. I'll I'll give you my reason why. We are under a massive labor shortage. And it's been very clear that no one wants to do these jobs. They're not getting applicants. What are they supposed to do? Just close the stores because they can't find people or pay an amount that is way above what the role should be paid? I don't know. What was your take on this? Well, so here's the thing, Serge, and, and this is maybe another kind of on trend, but somewhat related to the story of Abercrombie and Fitch, because right now there's a huge movement for consumers, specifically around Lululemon and Aritzia, because they have contracted with factories in these countries that by and large employ women and by and large pay these poverty wages. So whether you're in Nicaragua or Vietnam or somewhere in the Middle East, there is no way that is a decent wage. I'm not talking economics. I am talking about a moral decision to take advantage of another country because I get it. Nobody wants to do those jobs. I don't see manufacturing facilities popping up anywhere across Canada to be sewing together your Lululemons and your Aritzia clothes, they're all done offshore. 
The issue is making a business decision to do business with a factory or the call center in this case. And I think that's the issue here. Okay. Is the fact that at $375 an hour is what they're paying these call center people. You mean to tell me even in Nicaragua, that's a good wage? I don't know. I don't don't know. so. So what I think is important here, we're meaning all the labor standards in that particular country, right? No one's breaking the law in any way. And why are we telling another country that's way too low? How do we know that these people are just ecstatic about getting their $3.75 an hour? That is such a white guy thing to say, Serge. Oh my God, you should just be fucking grateful that we're paying you our big American Canadian dollars. No, this is targeting a demographic, which by and large is probably women or women with small children that are having to support families. I don't think you can slice this anyway and tell me that, oh yeah, because it's 375 in Nicaragua. We don't control it. No, you do control who you do business with. But what's the alternative? So Mm -hmm. if these people don't have these jobs, what are they going to be doing? Certainly not being taken advantage of. Well, or not working as well. I don't think so. Uh, and, and how do we, no, no, why no, no. are we so, making the call that $3 and 75 an hour in Nicaragua is not a fair wage? If we don't have a business that can sustain employing Canadians at $15 an hour, do you have a business? I've agreed with you on that, right? Yeah. Okay. And there's nothing new about using electronics for somebody to order food. McDonald's has been doing this for what? 10 years. Yeah. At least here in Canada, where you could walk up to a screen, you touch the screen, you order your food, and then it comes out. And there's nothing wrong with using technology. I think what's wrong here is that they made a decision to contract into a a third world country and take advantage of the fact that, well, you should just be lucky. You've got a fucking job. Any product contributing to the problem. Yes, but you're contributing to the problem too, because I can tell whatever you're wearing was not made in Canadian with Canadian wages. It was made somewhere overseas. Probably 90% of the things in your house are exactly the same. We're making judgment calls and saying, well, this is not fair. We don't know what's fair. And I regret not researching it more in depth, but this might be a great wage for someone there. Like, No, that's why there's pressure on Lulu and Aritzia right now. Because in order to ensure their, and again, it's just capitalism. Like, I don't think we're going to solve it, Serge. But the fact is they have chosen to have manufacturers make their clothes that give them better profit margins. Okay. The average wage in Nicaragua, this is a monthly. So 340 US dollars. So 375, that's sternness. Oh, my mat is bad. How much is that? So it is double. It'd be 649.50 if they're doing 40 hours a week. Double the average. So we're creating jobs in the market that needs jobs and it's double the average salary. And you think we're taking advantage of these people? I I disagree. Okay. So moving on. (laughs) Let's move on. Uh, I'm having a moral debate here. I found okay. a real well, I okay. love that. Let's, okay. And so wait, let's, wait, 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 before what? we move on. What? I love when I was right. <laughs> You're just oh like, God, I knew let's that move was on. Let's move so on. Let's move on. Tell you what, we're gonna have somebody from the audience 
chime in on this, I'm sure, to say, hold on a minute, that's not a living wage. Okay, so fair enough. Nicaragua, we'll, yeah. we'll let the audience decide that. Okay, okay, okay. Let's completely switch gears and let's talk about something that Kim Wilkinson, I know, has talked about, but our personalized messages to candidates, an effective use of your time versus templates or that sort of thing. You, you know, know I, I, I can change my mind. And this is the one of the things that I think I've changed my mind on. Because oh, okay. after reading this article, I'm like, hmm, yeah, maybe this makes sense. Recruiters spend uh, an insane amount of time when it comes to personalizing message. And this article that I read is mm-hmm. like, yes, maybe you were getting a better response rate. But is the difference in your response rate better then say you had AI create the message for you and sending out to more candidates. Because on average, they say here it takes 10 to 20 minutes per message. Maybe in eight hours, you can reach out to 50 candidates. Email average response rate is 10 to 25%. So this leaves around 75% to 90% of your candidate unresponsive. That mm-hmm. is poor return on investment. If we think it about the world of, say, sales or oh god, yeah, you can have AI. And I don't know if you've ever seen like GTP tree. Like, why don't you just do a handwritten note and mail it? <laughs> really, it's archaic to think that you're going to sit down, take 20 minutes to write a personalized message to someone. It comes right back to what we talked about earlier about building relationships. Of course, five out of 50 will respond. When you do the math on how much time you'd be spending writing out these personalized messages versus using technology or AI to help you put something that's cheeky, fun, maybe a little bit of personality in it and and is not so corny, you know, I, I, I noticed on your LinkedIn profile. No. Jesus. Well, I've leveraged Jarvis.ai, which is a tool to write copy, and it, it does an amazing job overall. I'm not that clever, and it's actually sending better messages. All it needs is the job description, a little bit of feedback from you, and then it reaches out to maybe 200 candidates. And even if you get a 5% response rate, well, that's 10 additional interviews, and it literally took you maybe an hour. Initially, I was a big fan that you need to personalize this message on your own. You need to send them directly. You need to have a unique story. But technology is so advanced right now that it can do that for you. I can't see myself spending eight hours sending 50 in-mail messages. And let's be honest, no one is. Maybe Kim Wilkinson is the exception because I know how good a recruiter she is, but She doesn't deal in high volume. If you're trying to recruit 200 drivers or 500 customer service personnel, are you going to write? No, no, no. Of course, that's ridiculous. I would say what Kim does really well, and you do this really well too, Serge. You're always reaching out to people. Not when you need something, not when you need a favor, just a touch base. Hey, I was thinking about you. Like that is continuing to build relationships with people. This is no different than spam email. Somebody really going to read this? Just because you're sending it as an in-mail message, you think somehow it's going to be better? Well, in in some roles you have to, right? Kim's example or myself is we've always recruited maybe roles that are very specific and targeted. Mm -hmm. 
And I don't think you should have AI replace you to do those roles. There might be five people that are qualified for that role. So you want to target them specifically and take the time to have a really good message because there's only five people that do that. You don't want to waste your chance. But if you're looking for high volume roles, I think they are right. I think you're wasting your time crafting all these personalized messages and I want to jump into the next topic because I don't know how I feel about this one. Older workers can help beat the skill shortage. As we know, there's supply and demand issues across the world. And there is a lot of people that left the workforce and are trying to find a way to get back in the workforce. Employers are looking at, is this the way for us to be able to at least fill some of that demand that we need by being more flexible, focusing on different things that are important to a different demographic when it comes to recruiting them. You know what? I'm going to ask you what your overall thoughts on having this as a strategy for your recruitment practice, but you feel this is a viable workforce, people that retired and are coming back into the workforce or who have never retired and are still looking to work maybe in their late 60s, early 70s. What's your overall thoughts on this? Yeah. So, you know, what's really interesting is when we say older workers, I think they're actually referring to people over the age of 50 is considered an older worker. Okay. If we're looking at over 50, because usually by the time you're in your 50s, you're in a different stage in life. If you're going to work, it's going to be something that you really want to do because typically you've established yourself in your career. The other thing is I even look at my parents, they're way healthier and I'm way healthier than the generation before me. Even two generations ago, somebody who between 50 and 55 was considered quite old, like much older than how we see 50 today, because most people didn't live to be much past 65 or 67. But I'm looking at my parents and and I'll tell you, Serge, they did not expect to live to be 87 and 86 years old, but they're healthy, right? And when we think about anybody who may have left the workforce for whatever reason in their 50s or even late 50s, early 60s, if they're going to come back, they want to come back on their own terms. It may not be that they're returning full-time 40 hours a week, right? When I initially read this, I took the 50 and put it as 60 in my head because I'm reading it again now. It's like 50, that doesn't seem old at all, especially Mm -hmm. that I'm like seven years from that. And I I still feel like I'm a young buck, right? I don't feel at 50, I'll be close to retiring. Would I want to retire in some ways? Maybe not retire Mm -hmm. like my parents did the like when my dad hit 55, he was done. It's, a, it's very different because our parents grew up with pensions. They grew up with completely different sure. set of safety net that we do have now. A lot of people save well. A lot of people are in good financial position, but a lot of people are not, right? So mm-hmm. a lot of people are working at a much older age than in the past. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that as long as they want to do that and it makes sense to them and it gives them purpose because a lot of people retire and they lose their sense of purpose. And that's a shame. We we have a labor shortage. We have a workforce that is quite capable for mm-hmm. some roles, not all the roles, but for mm-hmm. some roles or even most roles and they want to work. Why not be flexible with these workers 
We're flexible with 20-year-olds. We're flexible with 30-year-olds. Their current world of work is very flexible in general. But what I hate seeing is maybe older people, and it's not 50, it's not 60, it's maybe like 70, working because they have no choice and they might be in bad health. And of course, there's social safety nets here in Canada, even in the US, but some people fall through the cracks and those are the ones that I do feel bad. But overall, I have no issues. I think if you want to work and there's a demand for what you do, fantastic Mm -hmm. work. So this report, what blew my mind was saying that there are currently millions of individuals over the age of 50 who could be working, but aren't. And that I found really surprising. But when I look at the why behind it, and why would somebody over the age of 50 who could be working but aren't? Well, first of all, you're independently wealthy and you don't need to. But the other things that I know, because that's my life right now, is the fact that I'm caring for my kids and my parents at the same time. Yeah. Now, I'm very fortunate, obviously, to have my own company, but for a lot of people, it's overwhelming. If you are having to care for someone in the family who's sick or disabled or elderly, like it's going to typically fall on the woman's shoulder. You're probably much like, right. Much like childcare, it, it really does. So, according to this research and this report, it does show that w- that a woman has a 50 50 chance of ending up being the one providing unpaid care for someone else by the time they are 46 years old. Oh, I'm so glad I have three daughters. I'm telling you, Serge, (laughs) I'm telling you, you've got it made. Yeah. Really interesting topic. But like at the end of the day, we have to find people who want to work because we're going to be in this situation for the foreseeable future. Eventually, I think we're going to get to a point that automation is going to replace a lot more jobs than we do realize. And it's actually going to be the opposite. But for the near future, this is going to be a concern. If we have people that want to work, great. Let's figure out a way to be flexible and get them in the workforce. And similar in people in other countries that were doubling the national average wage to help us here in Canada, I think that's great too. So we'll agree to disagree on that one. But Shelly, a lot of interesting topics, right? And yeah. It's funny because when I saw this, what is it called? It's It's called White Hot. Yeah, White Hot. Okay. I had to watch it. I watched it, I think, the first day it came out because I love those types of shows. My favorite show is, like I've told you before, like Super Pumped. And I'm watching We Crashed, which is the story of WeWork and Billions and Secession. This was a documentary, obviously. There was a lot more to this documentary that we didn't even talk about. Like It's a bigger story. So if you haven't watched it, Definitely check it out. It's on Netflix. I think it came out last week or the week before. But Shelly, this was a fun week. It was. And a great week. Talk to you soon. Talk to you soon. What was it like to be there for historical sports moments and unforgettable performances? To be behind the scenes? On PressBox Access, you'll hear from me, Todd Jones, and other sports writers about their experiences with the greatest athletes, coaches, and sports events of the past half century. We'll share some stories behind the stories, some big, some small, and some we've only told each other. Let us buy you around on PressBox Access.